You are listening to The Last Aid Station on Mountain Bike Radio, your source of off-road news and highlights. And welcome to The Last Aid Station here on Mountain Bike Radio. We have some really cool stuff that we're going to kind of debut today. We're going in a whole new direction with The Last Aid Station. I know some of you listeners are thinking, wait a minute, didn't you just start to go in a new direction? Well, we're trying something out that... It's not going to change what we're covering, how we're covering it, or anything like that, but it's going to kind of change the way we're covering it. Um, one of the things I've done is we've gotten rid of Steve. Um, he was dragging the show down. Boom. Uh, <laughs> oh, damn it. I forgot to lock the door. Um, so this is Mark. That's Steve. Um, welcome to another episode of The Last Day Station. Um, yeah, but as I was saying, we are going to be trying something a little bit different, um, and we'll talk about that uh, in a second as to the the direction we're kind of traveling with the last aid station. The one thing that we're going to going to kind of do is kind of open up the last aid station. Though Steve and I both race endurance mountain bike racing, um, and that is definitely our focus, and we will still continue to be covering all that because that's what we do. Um, we're going to kind of open it up a little bit to other kinds of mountain bike racing. So you may hear us covering a little bit of the stuff that's going on, maybe the World Cup or, um, you know, domestic U.S. pro racing or even regular domestic regional racing, just yeah. because we want to have different talking points. We want to we want to talk about racing as a whole. So, yeah, and there's there's a lot of other things out there that's tied to the endurance stuff, too, that. I guess doesn't hit the mainstream, but you know, like Minnesota has a, has a series where there's four hour races and Wisconsin has the endurance series with 12 hour events. So there's, there's a lot of that stuff that, um, we can cover, love to cover it. It's hard for us to track down and, and we'll probably talk about this later in the show too, but, uh, that's probably where we need some audience help at, get us those race details. And, and, you know, honestly, you got a good story, good race story. We want to hear about it. It doesn't, it doesn't matter if you're on the podium or not. And, uh, I think listeners like hearing the stories, like hearing from the regular racers out there. So, um, you know, pass that stuff on to us. We'll cover it. I agree. Um, so the future of the last aid station, we're really not going to change that. We are going to be covering mountain bike racing in primarily North America, but we'll certainly be doing some, um, covering some of the bigger races, um, internationally, but, uh, we're not necessarily only going to be focusing on the guys that are finishing on the top step. Uh, we're going to cover a lot of stories because there are plenty of stories that happen um, in the back of the pack or in the middle of the pack. And honestly, last year when I was covering the NUE, some of the best stories were the stuff occurring in the middle of the pack. And that's where a lot of the interest is generated. And often that's where the the best comments I received from the coverage was finding out like how those guys finished or, yeah. you know, how you, how you get past a hardship necessarily and things like that. And so that's kind of the future where we're headed. We're still going to be covering, you know, who won the race and oh, yeah. how they did that. But um, we're also going to try to start covering the race as a whole and not just the guys that are finishing one, two, three. So. Yeah. There's some, been some examples, you know, Mark and I got talking about it and, and some of the good stories like true grit. I know guy, guy out there, uh, I think his name was Mark Crancy. He, he lost his pedal at four miles into the race, broke his pedal off and finished the last 84 miles of the race riding out his bearing spindle. You know, right. so those are, you know, and then he still finished in a little over nine hours. That's pretty awesome. 
Right. So, and yeah, there's, there's plenty of stories out like that. You know, guys that have, you know, broken a derailleur off, ridden back to the start finish line, changed the derailleur out, you know, re reconfigured their gears, put, you know, got back out on the course, you know, now they're an hour down and they still, you know, um, do the best they can certainly don't end up on the top step of the podium, but that's what we want to start covering. Those like really cool interest stories that are occurring in all these races. Yep. Cause the longer the race, the more that stuff happens. And, you know, some of the best stories out there are the ones coming from, you know, how somebody overcame a hardship, not because they ended up on the top step, but because, you know, they stuck it out and really pushed through and did all the things that they needed to do to finish the race. And so yeah. we want to cover those stories as much as we want to cover the, um, you know, how the race was won necessarily. So. And it's inspiring too. I mean, and we all want to, you know, we talk about people that take the excuses away. So I, I think we all like hearing stories like this. Yeah. Right. And the other thing we're going to try to do, um, it's going to be more on our end, but we're going to kind of try to make this more of a conversation thing where Steve and I are talking about the races and not doing the whole sportscaster kind of feel that the last aid station um, kind of has followed up to about this point or so. We can still discuss the race ones. You'll still get all the information, um, but it's just going to change the way um, we're presenting those those races and topics. So. So what's been going on with you, Steve? I I've been getting two or three rides in a week. I, I did get uh, probably I've been I've been making an effort to get to some single track uh, okay. at least twice a week. I, I've done a lot of road riding in the past just because it's so convenient leaving right from my house and it's forty miles to get to the trail. But I'm weak on single track and getting through flowy stuff and maneuvering the bike and carrying speed through corners. So I've been trying to. I have not been riding as much. I mean, my rides have been limited to probably three max of four rides a week. Uh, okay. But I have been making effort to spend a larger chunk of that time on some single track. Oh, good deal. So I'm, uh, about how many miles are you doing, give or take? Ooh, uh, you know, like, so last well, how many hours? How many hours are you spending on the bike? How about that? Last week, I did two of my own harder trail rides, I guess. And I think I probably spent about six hours is all. Uh, <laughs> four hours, one ride, two hours, another. And then I, uh, I did a kind of a gravel road ride from my house over to the County park for another hour and a half. Another, uh, it's, it's actually been under 10 hours, maybe eight hours total. Okay. So ride, you're saying ride with the kids or something, maybe. So you're saying just like me, you are completely prepared for the Mohican 102 weeks. I am completely prepared to finish it. <laughs> okay. Um, How about you, Mark? You just got back yeah. from a trip, right? Yeah. Um, tenth wedding anniversary. Went to Jamaica. Oh, congrats. Um, it was very cool. Um, I'm not. I've been to Jamaica before. wasn't a big fan. Went back. Um, found a really nice resort that we went to and hung out and did all the cool things that you do. Um, not a complete fan of Jamaica still um i've never been yeah it's um it's it's beautiful i mean it's, it's one of the most beautiful places i've ever been to you know the mountains go right down to the sea and um all that that stuff and the resort was amazing and the people were super friendly and stuff but um jamaica is also one of those countries where there are certain places you could get into some bad trouble by going in the wrong spot at the wrong time um, and so there are sketchy areas, um, in and around, uh, where we were staying that I just don't like, you know, 
being in danger part of the time or possibly being in danger. You know, people say, Oh, where'd you go? And we went, well, we went down here to this jerk chicken shack. And they're like, Oh, did you walk there? You're like, yeah. <laughs> and they're, they're just shaking their heads and they live there, you know? <laughs> like, well, okay. Um, um, I had some issues in Jamaica. Of course, you know, I'm training for Mohican just like Steve is. Um, I don't have the opportunity to take my bike. I'm in Jamaica for a week. And so I spent the majority of my time either running steps, um, at least as far as working out goes, um, running steps. The the resort had a section that was kind of built on a cliffside, and so they had hundreds of steps. Um, so I would run steps to try to keep some type of fitness um, and I also hate Star Trek cardio bike traders, but I spent a good deal of time on those, which are those little. Yeah, the you ones sent me a picture in. of a of a trainer or something in the gym. Yeah, <laughs> um, it's it was horrible. Um, <laughs> I took a pair. Of was it one short, of those but, like just standard? Oh yeah, gym it's, issues, fact, short cranks, uh, and short really cranks. wide seat. Um, yeah, it's super wide seat. You know, I ended up having to, you know, sit really far forward. So, um, I could even ride it. Um, it didn't work real well. It's kind of glitchy. Nothing felt right. You know, um, crank arms are probably, I don't know, 160, 165. They felt really short, really spinny. I know. I know. Well, I'm I'm just, I'm just glad I didn't come out of there with a bunch of knee problems, honestly. Um, but the weight loss went really well in Jamaica. Um, uh, because, um, on the first day we were there, we ate at a jerk chicken shack. Walked on the side down to of the the road. Chicken shack. Yeah. I walked down to the chicken shack and then, <laughs> um, had considerable weight loss over the next two days. If you know what I'm saying, um, uh, my, uh, oral intake was down and, uh, my output was up, so to speak. Uh, but, uh, <laughs> Good stuff. Uh, but it's good. I came back weighing less than when I went down there. So that, that's always good for, for yeah. bike racing. <laughs> yeah. So anyhow, so that, that, that was uh last week. And then this week I'm back on it. Um, training again, did a really long ride yesterday, felt really good. Um, but was stuck in a torrential downpour, just horrible, um, when I came back, my wife was just shaking her head. She said, like, you know, there were all kinds of weather alerts and tornado warnings. And uh, I didn't know it because I didn't, my phone had long died before that. And, uh, How long did you ride? I was, I, well, once I, once I got wet, I figured I might as well just keep riding. I mean, yeah, I'm already you're in it, wet. you're in it. Yeah. So um, it was uh, about five hours nice. um, on the road. So it was nice. I, I, once you know, once you get wet, you're, you're like, well, no sense in going back now. You're already wet. Um, yeah. You're already going to have to clean your bike. You're already going to have to, you know, re-lube whatever you're going to have to do, you know, bottom brackets and, you know, chains and clean your bike and all that stuff. So, yeah, the hardest part is getting getting wet the first time. You know, you're getting chased by storms. But once you're in it, you might as well just keep riding. Stay in so, Yeah. So, um I feel that I am completely underprepared for Mohican. I have, I know I have the endurance to, to finish it. Um, but you know, originally my plan this year was to race it and see how well I could do, but I think that's not quite where I'm at yet. Um, I'm looking to have fun, looking to have a great weekend. And with that in mind, Steve and I, as we've mentioned before, are going to be at Mohican 100 racing Mohican 100, um, up there in Loudonville, Ohio, we're both looking forward to it, and we are going to have a get-together um, at 
the Mohican campground. Um, we are staying across the road. We're part of the Mohican campground, but across the road, there are a couple um, cabins that you can rent, and that's where we're staying, and we're probably going to get some beer for after the race and hang out. So if anybody is listening and would and is attending the Mohican 100, please feel free to come across the road. I mean, there's free beer at the campsite because um, at the campground because of the Mohican 100 sponsored by Great Lakes Brewing. But if you come across, we'll also have some beer. We'll be all sitting around at the cabin chilling. It sits right on the river. It's got a big deck, um, but feel free to come across. We'll be hanging out. Um, certainly, into Saturday night and talking all the stories and everything that went wrong at the Mohican 100. Um, but we're really looking forward to that. Um, and we'd love to meet some of our listeners. That'd be great. Yeah. So um, into, let's talk a little bit about news. Like we kind of always do here on the last aid station. Um, lots of stuff going on. Yeah. What do you got? Um, so this isn't really like endurance specific, but it kind of affects a lot of people. Um, that listen to the show, um, especially as in seas like endurance mountain bike racing, a lot of people have kind of moved towards getting like custom hardtails made, especially those who race uh, bike packing events. Um, but if you have custom bikes, um, is probably it's likely a steel bike, um, and it's likely made out of true temper steel. If you truly from a custom bike designer, um, true temper. Uh, which is a steel manufacturer is getting out of the steel tubing business. And it true temper for most, I would bet that in the United States accounts for 70 or 80% of the steel butted tubing that is made um, specifically for custom bike manufacturing. They will get out of it over the next year. And by early 2017 will no longer even manufacture, distribute it, sell it. Um, so there's been a big push in recent years with frame builders um, coming up with cool designs, especially because it seems like in endurance mountain biking, there's so many specific rider specs, you know, people looking for certain types of geometry or they're looking for, you know, they're looking for specific wheel sizes and widths, whether that's 27.5 or 29 plus or hub specifics. Do you want boost? Do you not want boost? And yeah, and then the perks, of course, you know, like, options. right. And people want certain options so they can put, you know, larger frame bags or whatever. And, and designers were more than happy to come up with custom designs, but true temper who makes the majority of steel tubing for bicycle manufacturing is getting out of it. So it'll be kind of interesting to see, you know, how that all unfolds. Um, not sure if, other companies will step up their manufacturing um, or if we'll get a lot more imported tubes, you know, Reynolds still makes tubing and um, Columbus, I believe still makes tubing. So there are other options. Right. There are other options out there, but there's still going to be a hole. No matter how you look at it, there's going to be a hole in the market for that stuff. So um, it doesn't really affect us directly, but I know plenty of our listeners who probably have custom bikes and or maybe are looking to get a custom bike. If you're looking to get one cheaper, you might want to be looking now because the the big manufacturer of steel tubing is getting out of the business. Hmm. Um, Linderettes. Um, so we've talked about Linderettes before. They're, they work with Wolf Tooth or the distribution of stuff. They're an aftermarket component company. Um I have called them genius. Um, they come up with problem solving just like Wolf Tooth does, aftermarket issues. 
They're the ones that came up. We discussed this probably four or five months ago. We talked about the goat link that came out, which extends the, the pivot, um, the axis of the rear derailleur further out. So for these larger cassettes, it allows you to shift much more efficiently. Basically, um, let your uh, pulley clear the cassette. Yeah, it, right. It, it, right. It, it drops it further out away from the frame. Um, and then the tan pan, which we talked about, I think, two or three episodes ago, which converts the mountain bike rear derailleurs to be shifted with Shimano road levers. Um, it's just kind of a, it just adapts that. I, I still never realized that was the case between the uh, the mountain and the road. I just always assumed. Yeah, yeah could, not compatible. But I um, never tried but, it, you know, so that's why I never do. But yeah. But anyhow, Linderettes. Um, they are taking their entire catalog of all the stuff they've come up with um, and they are licensing it to Wolf Tooth, who will continue to manufacture it, will continue to market, but they're gonna, it's going to be under the Wolf Tooth name. So it looks like they're getting out of the manufacturing, distribution, sales side of things and just want to do the engineering and licensing, which is kind of cool. You come up wow. with the idea and you give it to somebody else. That, that stuff is still going to be out there, which is a very good thing in that all that stuff will still be available. You know, one of the things that could have happened is they didn't find someone to distribute it like Wolf Tooth and they just got out of it and all that stuff just disappeared. And so at least all that stuff will continue to be available. And it sounds like they're going to continue to put stuff out um, and then license it to Wolf Tooth to actually market and distribute and sell. So that's kind of cool that that's still going on. Um um, I'm going to get on a soapbox here. <laughs> um, here here so, goes Mark with a rant. <laughs> yeah, here we go. Um, so it was probably six, eight months ago, maybe even a lo- little longer than that. And Trek and a few other brands had a huge recall. It was well over a million. I think it approached 1.5 million bicycles uh, were affected. Skewers. For the skewers, right. And it um, because it turned out there was a hazard potential and those skewers – um, could become disengaged and then enter the plane of the rotor disc and cause potential crashes. I'm not sure if it actually ever caused crashes or someone just saw that, that it could cause a crash. I think there was a, was a few. Yeah. Um, but that was like six months ago, maybe a little more. Um, anyhow, well, Rocky Mountain Bicycles has done exactly the same thing and they are recalling 80,000 bicycles. Now, the process includes taking that bike back to a retail location um, and switching out the quick release, which had the new quick release they have to replace it has now a firm stop so that it can't be pushed too far in and touch the rotor disc. Um, My rant would be, why wouldn't you simply put the lever on the opposite side than the disc? seems like that's the quick, easy fix Um, versus bring it in, switching it out. Because if you put the if you put the lever on the opposite side, sure, it could look a little janky on the rear derailleur side, but you can still get it to work. I've seen people do it. Um, so I don't, and especially on the front, you just put it on the, you know, on the right side versus the left. It just yeah. seems like that's the quick fix. I don't understand why there needs to be a recall. seems to me that's the common sense thing, especially for me and probably the majority of our listeners who ride bikes all the time it seems like why do you need to recall it just yeah but i think that's probably a difference between well it's a difference between common sense and liability i understand well no i mean i think it's the 
you know, out of those 80,000 bikes that are covered, right, maybe a hundred of them are people that ride a lot and the other 79,900 of those bikes are people that yeah. don't, you know, ride them very much and you're, you're mainstream folk, you people, right? Right. That's and true. Sometimes um, we're, we're around it so much. Right. And, but yeah, there's uh, a, you know, there's not, there's probably not 80,000 people that race. Right? That's true. I'm, I'm really surprised that Rocky mountain bicycles was as affected as it is 80,000 bicycles because I've always known Rocky mountain bicycles. Now the majority of their, um, their sales are in Canada. Um, well, they're, I think, they're a Canadian company, right? Right. Like 80% of their sales, I believe are in Canada, um, 10% in the U S and 10% everywhere else. But I'm really surprised that that many of their bicycles, 80,000, but of course this extends back to 2005 or maybe it covered even, a lot of years, but, I mean, a lot of years. but I'm surprised that that many bicycles are affected. Um, especially given that I know Rocky mountain bicycles as a mountain bike company and not that many mountain bikes anymore have quick release. Most of them are through axles of one type or another. Yeah, back um, at so, that time, though, that was right. Correct. Yeah, and that's what I'm thinking is this is probably because it's going back pre 2012 when the majority were probably were quick release. I mean, so, I never had a I never had a through axle until two years ago. Right. Yeah. Like this so. this month. But I mean, a majority of your people that buy and ride ride bikes, you know, they they don't mess with that stuff that much, right? When they buy that bike, the dealer probably is showing them how the quick release works, right? You know, yeah, so and they, you know, they hear there's think, a right, recall, they don't know any different. Pushing it all the way in, yeah, past you know a ninety degree angle will tighten it even further, yeah, um, and. Of course, then you're entering the you know the levers now entering where the that rotor is yeah. running. So. And I think sometimes we take we, we take some of that stuff for for granted because we're around it all the time. Right. Yeah. yeah. So, maybe, um, maybe like so we're we're probably out of touch a little bit with the the main. Right, because it's it just kind of, it's kind of consumer. it's not even it's not even something you think about. It's just something you do. And, right. Right. Um, in other manufacturing news, SRAM has released four e-bikes. No. Not going there. I'm not going to talk about it. I don't I, care. I was <laughs> don't just care. about to. I was like, what? <laughs> they released something for e-bikes, and we're not discussing it. So there you go. <laughs> oh, no. uh, yeah, uh, this this came up the other day. Somebody was like, e-bikes on trails, and I, I we won't spend time on this, but I was I'm like, you know, I, one of my local trails, I'm like fifty fifty for making it on that course without hitting a tree, yeah. and I'm like take the guy that gets his brand new e-bike and he's riding it about four miles an hour faster than he normally would. I mean, you know, he's going to wrap that e-bike around a tree. You know, it seems like when e-bikes kind of really started, he's going to override everything. Discussion started happening a year ago, maybe a little more than that. Um, I, it didn't really affect me. I didn't know anybody that had one. I didn't see anybody selling them. Of course, now that, you know, it's a little more, they're a little more pervasive now, but I remember the first time I saw one on a set of single track, um, that amazing single track and how pissed I was because I hadn't seen one yet. I hadn't even seen one in person. I saw this guy just ripping through the trails. Now I've ridden about three or four miles on one before. A couple right. Ago. I, 
I was just amazed at how disturbed I was by the whole thing and how pissed I was at seeing it. Now, not that's not to say that I disagree with some of the intent and purposes of them. Um, and that, that's a whole show in itself of yeah. Yeah. What's, what should an e-bike be used for and what shouldn't it be. Next but, topic. But, right, exactly. But I, I, I just, I'll never forget how that made me feel to be, you know, riding along in really good shape and just getting ripped by this guy that was just going, I mean, way, way faster than I could ever even consider going, um, on a mountain bike. Um, you know, and just watching him just like, I mean, barely pedaling, just not even out of breath and, you know, going past me on a section of trail that I'm going 13 or 14 on and he's going, you know, 19 or 20. Um, but that, you know, but anyhow, SRAM has released something for e-bikes. If you'd like to look, look it up on the internet, have, have at it, but I'm not going to discuss it here. So there, um, Steve, you had some uh, information about the new series. That's kind of just, yeah. And I reared its head. I think these races are been around, right? But there's a, a new series formed for it's the national 24 hour mountain bike solo championship series, but right. the races that are, within it now and I'm, I'm assuming the intention is to to grow this series but it's mm-hmm. the enchanted forest uh 24 race in june there's a oregon race in september and frog hollow in november and mark, maybe mark you're familiar with these races in particular but the, yeah. um yeah my guess is that the intention is to grow it because you know only three races in a series but of course three 24 hour races will can wreck you <laughs> so. right so it's, it's enchanted forest frog hollow and then a race in oregon yeah that's what it is. okay yeah. um yeah i i'm glad to see i got into mountain biking again just as 24-hour racing was kind of going out um and i always wanted to do 24-hour racing because we had a, a big one here it kind of just faded away recently which was the burn 24 i would North like Florida. to do one myself as a bucket list thing my, my reservations are on it that i don't like lap races the reason i kind of got interested in these 100 mile ones is they're usually point to point or one big loop right yeah um i you know i i kind of understand what the promoters are doing obviously uh Simran Chacon is part of this is the frog hollow is one of them um It'd be kind of interesting to see what their plans are. Obviously, they want to expand it, and you can't really call it a national 24-hour race when everything is literally uh, west of Colorado. Um, I, I'd like I, to see it grow. I mean, it's... I would love to see it grow. The and rest of the world's see, doing it, too, uh, you know. Right. I would love to see 24-hour racing come back. You know, it is still a very valued format in Australia where 24-hour racing is a huge thing, and people just concentrate on that and do more than they want. Um, there's plenty of races every seemingly in their season nearly you know every other week or so um you know of course in the united states um just last year um usa cycling actually took away their 24-hour national championships which josh estado had held for five years six years something like that yeah and i've been Um, i think it's i think it's a really cool I think it's a cool thing. And, and what's funny is, is they got rid of 24 hour racing at the same time, the bike packing, which is, there are segments of 24 hour racing in bike pack racing, especially when oh, you get into sure. short, the shorter races, you know, trans North Georgia and things like that, that are, 
you know, the winters are right around 40, 48 hours or so. So you're looking at the guys that do really well could go back and forth between those. It's, you know, bike pack racing to me is unsupported 24 hours. Around the clock racing. Yeah. yeah. I mean, so, aside from the, the lap thing, I've been told that like the 12 hour and the 24 hour race formats with the laps, I've been told it's a really awesome atmosphere to race in just because you get to come around that loop, you get the pit area and it's just, it's a kind of more of a, a festival type of racing. Oh, absolutely. You know? it is. Versus yeah. it's entirely different than being out on the trail completely by yourself for, you know, 10 hours. Right. Uh, so I, I, that's, I'm, I'm interested. I would really, I think it'd be fun to go, go do one and it'd be an ultimate test to be able to just sit there and grind out for 24 hours, you know? Right. Uh, and I've, I've taken friends of mine, um, to both, um, they've come and watched me do a, you know, like a typical hundred miler. Um, and as well as they come, um, and we hung out at a, at the burn 24 and they were amazed. They had a blast at the burn 24. Of course, you know, they've got, you know, they've got camping. It's a, it's like a community. It's like a big, like tent city. Yeah. Right? That's what I, I can pull my trailer in and, you know, right. And they have like, they bring and, in, they bring in yeah. food trucks and food and there's, you know, they set up like, you know, temporary shower locations and, um, you know, it's, it's kind of like a, just like a big, it's almost, it's almost it's a music festival without the music, you know, where the focus is more on the athlete thing, but yeah. it's the same kind of, you know, the whole like big, huge, you know, like 75 or a hundred tents, you know, people have got RVs parked in there and, you know, people are, and not everybody's doing solo racing. You know, the majority, at least around here, as it started to fade away was everyone's doing relay racing, whether duo or four man teams or four person teams. So yeah. I, I just, I wish it had, I think it was in a lull, but I think it's it has a potential to really grow. And I'm glad somebody's bringing it back, at least creating a series. Yeah. Hopefully it'll become truly a national series by adding some events. There's probably some races the out there that exist today that maybe just don't get the attention that we can, they can pull them into that series and, and actually make a, a true series out of it. Right. Yeah. And you know, the same thing goes for, you know, comparing this to the beginning years of the NUE or the national ultra endurance series that, it wasn't a truly a national series when they started. Um, you know, the majority of the races even now are still East coast centric. There are some, there is more of a national series now, but you know, there's large segments of the country. California really comes to mind where there's really only one race where you come East coast and you've got, you know, half the races just within, you know, eight or 10 hour drive of Virginia. So, right. um, but it just takes time to develop that into a series and, and yeah. pick and choose. And you got to be, I'm sure those promoters have got to figure out what works and what doesn't and be picky on what races they're going to include. The last thing you want to do is include a race that goes under or gets canceled due to low um, entries or yeah. whatever. And there's, so. there's room in there, right? So uh, they've got one in June and then there's not another one until September. So you've got, you know, some time and, july august to toss one in there you know right yep yeah and i i can see this this growing into a a decent series and i'm i'm glad somebody's pushing that segment of the sport the the race classes that from what i understand they have set up is a a men's geared solo open women's geared solo open and single speed those are the three classes for it okay that's good i mean no um no age groups but you know you never know what's going to as this becomes more popular, maybe they'll add 
um, other divisions. And that's, that's cool too. So yeah. Yeah. the, uh, the other thing I, I just come across this or, uh, found out is, is tailwind is up for sale over in Michigan. And I remember, I think my first mountain bike I race I did, and this is going back 16, 17 years ago, something like that. But, uh, I thought tailwind is the one that put that on, but it's, it's, I believe they did all the USA Cycling, you know, the the summer weekend race series at your local courses. Um, But it appears that Fun Promotions, who I believe has also been around quite a long time, and people might be familiar with them, I believe they've done more of the endurance stuff in Michigan, like the Hands of Hills and the the Pando Challenge stuff, I believe. Uh, But it appears that the new series that Fun Promotions is putting on is not does not require USA cycling license this year, which okay. would be going away from what, you know, as far as I know, Michigan had always used USA cycling licenses. So, um, if somebody has any corrections on that or, you know, send us an email, let us know. I just, something I, I found come across, I'm in Minnesota now. I know Minnesota, uh, stopped, uh, having the USA cycling events as well a couple of years ago for their weekend series. Okay. All right, we've got some uh, races to talk about, um, and we're going to kind of bring these into a yeah. format of more discussing these races. Um, so, you want to? You've got you got a bunch of stuff on Kohuta, don't you? Yeah, I, I do have a bunch of stuff on Kohuta. Um, so, Kohuta 100 occurred. Of course, it is the um, second race of the Annui series, um, and it is a really, really, really cool course. Um, I really like that course. Um, it's turned into a little bit more gravel um, than it has the first couple of years I did it, um, which had a lot more single track seemingly, um, but it's kind of moved off of, um, they had a little bit of issue with land management. Um, it used to race from Tennessee into Georgia and the, they had to deal with two different land management uh-huh. uh, areas and so the side on the georgia side always was a lot more troublesome um and so now they race um entirely in tennessee is there any repeated course or is it um yeah there is repeated course um the well it used to be almost a it was a lollipop course so you do a whole bunch of single track and then you go out on a lollipop course, you go down, and then at the very end of the trail was the, the Pinoti, and you would do a section of the Pinoti and then pretty much backtrack your way backtrack back to the single track and okay. do a smaller segment of single track on your way to the finish. Um, what happens now is is that they um, – and, of course, this year the NUE is including a 100K series. Um, they – they do that same section of single track. Um, it's probably around 20 miles or so after an opening section of pavement. Um, and then they, so they do 20 miles of single track, then they head out onto the gravel. Um, and then the, uh, big frog 100 K, which is that shorter version does a shorter loop on gravel and comes back and does the finished section. And then the, Kohuta 100 goes out and does a larger section of gravel and then comes oh. back. So, so between the just, two races, it's bookended, it's bookended um, by the same section of single track. Um, just there's a shorter segment of gravel for the shorter race. Oh, really? So the, the shorter race is, I mean, by percentage wise, is actually more technical. Yes. And there's, there's actually a lot of people that actually go and do the big frog simply because 
60% of their race is 50% or 60% of their race is single track. Um, okay. Whereas on the, the hundred miler, probably only maybe 30, 35% of your race is single track. As you get out there though, I mean, a lot of the hundred mile races, I mean, it's hard to put a hundred miles of single track together without oh, yeah. eating trail without, without right. Doing laps, you know? Yeah. 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 Um, so this year um, occurred uh, last weekend in April um, and it was, uh, like I said, 14,000 feet of elevation for the 100-miler. I think it was right around uh, 7,000 feet of elevation for the – Wow. Is that uh, elevation in the gravel or single track? Um, just a little bit in the single track, um, mostly on the gravel. The big climbs are definitely on the gravel where you're gaining you know, okay. 500, 700 feet at a time. It's mostly in the gravel sections. And, of course, this race – um, occurs at the Ocoee Whitewater Center, which was home of the 1996 Atlanta Olympics. It was where they held the kayaking whitewater events um, there. Okay. Uh, it's in Ducktown, which is extreme eastern uh, Tennessee. Right, It's probably within five miles of the North Carolina border and probably within five miles of the Georgia border. Okay. Um, but the conditions all week were fast and dry, but there was a huge prediction of afternoon thunderstorms. It had a lot of racers sending some rain gear up into the ladder aid stations just in case they would encounter some of that stuff for the um, second part of the course. Now, this course, many, many moons ago, um, this race had actually had tornado warnings on the course while the race was occurring. Um, so they... They are definitely they definitely fringe on the side or the hedge on the side of safety, and so um, they are very well prepared, very well um, managed. It's a very well thought out course, yeah. um, but this year had a few little problems, and we'll discuss that in a second. I was um, uh, I, I saw you post something on the somewhere about uh, course markings or something. Yeah, yeah, there were. And it seems like the bigger these events become, the more um, uh, more notoriety it gets in the local community, both positive and negative, because there are some people that don't feel that they're, you know, they're having 500 racers racing on their, the trails that they consider uh, yeah. local, whatever, whatever. And we, we um, get to it, I guess. There's always, there's always, you know, a couple idiots and it's not just the NUE series. I mean, but the NUE series by far has the biggest name. And so there are people that will go out of their way to, um, I don't know, be idiots, I guess. <laughs> so, um, but anyhow, this course is a, a really, really cool course. So it starts in the Whitewater Center parking lot and then an, immediately within uh, 300 meters of the start uh, line climbs a pavement section that's probably right around two miles, gains somewhere probably around five or 600 feet. And it, it is simply there just to do exactly what it does, which is blow that field apart, apart before it hits the initial signal track, which they actually hit just barely over the top of the climb. There's a small downhill section, um, and then they go off into the single track. Um, that single track then leads kind of down. Oh, it weaves. It's the, some of the funnest single track I've ever been on. It's very flowy, but it's not 
purposely bermed. Okay. It just has natural berms from like where people have just ridden it in. Um, okay. And you just flow all the way down to the lake, which is right where you started. Um, and then you climb back up to almost all the way to the top again um, on some very gentle risers. You don't realize how much you're climbing until you look down and see how far the lake is below you. And then you descend back into the Whitewater Center and then out onto the course proper. It takes you about 45 minutes, 55 minutes, somewhere in that range to do that initial opening loop. And then you go out on to about another 15 miles of single track, so about another hour and a half of single track through a neutral aid station, which is just um, what is provided by the promotions, though they usually have anything and everything you want, potato chips, cookies, water, um, nutrition fluids, hydration, electrolytes, all that stuff they've got there, and then out onto the gravel roads. And then you're out on the gravel roads probably for the next seventy miles or so. Really? Um, And um the initial section is just kind of rolling. It stays on top of the ridge line. Then it eventually drops back down onto a very flat section where if you're not in a group, you will surely be in one shortly because someone's going to catch you from behind. <laughs> Coming up from um, behind you. <laughs> yeah, is it, not, you're not so going to stay in front. Is a lot of the gravel, is it all gravel roads or is it like some gravel two tracks and ATV trail type stuff too? Or it's all gravel it's roads? All, forest roads i mean some of it is it's all dirt some of it has more gravel than others but it is definitely okay. like drivable forest service roads um there's okay. the, and, and occasionally you pass houses and like actual gravel roads with drainage on the side and things okay. like that um then you actually come out to eventually you pass through eight two and eight three and then you come to eight four, which is also eight five. So you go out and do a lollipop section, which is super climby, super hilly, and you're out there for thirty miles. So you're out there on a climby section of course that may take you three hours if you're a mid packer. So you're you're gonna be out there without any aid um close to three hours. Um, so a lot of people often from that aid station will actually take a uh, will pack for aid station four an actual um, hydration pack of some sort, a Camelback or whatever, okay. to actually use for that section. And then come back and then they can discard it for the final run in. Um, and then a very uh, the probably the steepest climb where it seems like a lot of the big moves are made over the last couple of years goes up to the aid station. Uh, whatever you're up to now, seven. And then the final run into the last section of single track down onto some pavement, two miles on pavement to the finish. Um, so it is a, uh, it is very, very climby, but the majority of the climbs are big. So you're, you'll get 800 feet at a time, 600 feet at a time. Um, and uh, it definitely favors. It's a climber's course because it's long, steady tempo kind of climbing. Um, the kind of climbing I don't like. I like short, steep stuff, and this is definitely long, grinder kind of climbing. Um, but in the men's race, uh, the way it kind of played out, um, and we've talked about everybody um, that we that we're going to mention here um, were people that I mentioned previously in who I expect to do really well in the NUV. Um, but at the beginning of the race, Ryan Serbel, who I said was going to have a strong year was the guy pushing that pace on that opening pavement and really pushed the pace and shattered the field behind him. And only about a group of 10 
12, somewhere in that, hit that initial section of downhill single track. Um, and he led most of the single track, um, kind of pushing the pace, kind of comfortable depending on who you talk to. Some said yeah. that, that um, you know, if you're further far enough back, you were definitely having to play sprint out of some of the corners while some of the people up a little closer to the front were just rolling through there. But in that group, um, Dylan Johnson, Ian Spivak, um, Brian Schwarm, Gordon Wadsworth, Scott Hoffner, Thomas Golas, Christian Tangi. Surprisingly, Christian Tangi, who we had mentioned. Said he was out to have fun. Said right? he was out to have fun, but here he is in the league group. Yeah. And so, also, uh, Wadsworth was, he was racing geared bikes. He was right? racing. So okay. uh, he had taken, so he'd taken um, first place by the skin of his teeth um, at True Grit. And now had moved over to throw his hand into the ring. He's now got a sponsorship with Pivot, and they've given him uh, a full suspension geared bike, as well as his Pivot Less that he's uh, that he races almost all his single speed races on. Um, so that's what he's racing this year. So he's, if he's on a geared bike, he's going to be on uh, a full suspension. Um, so. Onto the gravel through aid station number one, a group of about 12 to 15. And through aid number two, I actually talked to Gordon. He said it was kind of non-competitive. Nobody was really taking advantage of someone taking a slower start because, you know, you come into that aid station 12th or 15th, you're not not necessarily going to be going to get the same service you were if you came into that group first. So into the onto the rolling gravel sections, and um, they they were actually going at a conservative enough pace that people were actually bridging up to them, which is unheard of on this course because it is. If you've got a pack that's working well together, you're kind of just rotating through the through the group, and pace yeah. line really makes makes or breaks um, some sections of this course. And they were actually being bridged up by small groups of three, four, and pretty soon that group had swelled to around. 15 or more Wow! Uh, people that had bridged up included uh, Francis Cuddy, uh, Brian Schwarm's teammate. So now he had his teammate in there, um, Nate Cornelius, Randy Kerr, who was racing on a single speed, but in the 50 plus division. So everyone was trying to figure out, okay, where's this guy racing? How early uh, in the race is this yet? I mean, this is probably 30 to 40 miles in. Um, and then they hit that loop that I was telling you about that gets really climbing where they go out from one aid station and return to the same aid okay. station. And Christian Tengiz decided to show some of his form um, by um, pushing the climbs. And he was really pushing the climbs, but right on his wheel every time he did it, Dylan Johnson. Mm-hmm. Uh, occasionally, as conditions would favor it, Brian Schwarm and his teammate were more than happy to take advantage of them dropping the speed some. And they would push off the front to force the group behind to not get a little rest and actually have to keep them in check. Um, so up on the climb, as they came back through eight, five went back out and then the biggest climb of the day. And this is where that turn happens. So after you pass age five, you come back down to a course, you're on a section of about a mile of flat gravel or false flat gravel. Okay. You're coming back down the same section of course. So people are actually coming back towards you. So you can, you can see how far people are behind or not. <laughs> Well, no, because, I mean, this is, you're talking 30 miles, but there are some of the oh. back from the 100-miler race are actually coming towards you. 
Meanwhile, there are people that are coming towards you and making a left. You're coming down there and you need to make, or they're making a right. You need to make the left, but there's no marking from that direction. So um, the lead group of men um, actually got, actually stopped in that intersection. Some making a quick U-turn, some discussing is this the turn? Because there was no marking. Um, they got onto that section of trail and luckily is that one of the markings you're talking about that this is the mark we're talking about. And we'll, we'll talk about what may have caused this issue, yeah. but they got onto that trail and then, then it was marked or that section of road. And then it was finally marked. Um, and then about halfway up that climb, Dylan Johnson decided to show the form he has and pushed off the front with only swarm staying with him. They got up to aid number six and Tangi and Golas and Spivak were trailing just behind. And then Johnson and Schwarm were gone. They, they put it down on the rollers on the top of the ridgeline as they headed back to the single track. And then in the final sections of gravel before they hit the, the last five miles or so of single track, which includes probably half of that in a downhill uh, section of trail, Johnson dispatched Schwarm like like got rid of him like he was a bad habit and um, Schwarm would do his best to keep him in check but Dylan Johnson of Giant Factory Team winning in 6 hours and 42 minutes with Brian Schwarm of Think Green less than 2 minutes behind. Um, Third place to Thomas Golas of DRT Racing and fourth to Ian Spivak then as the race for the final spot the podium came down Four guys entered the ring as they hit the final section of of pavement there. Um, Scott Hoffner would lead it out from the front and hit the bridge and was just fast enough to hold off Gordon Wadsworth on his wheel the whole way, but he just couldn't come around him. Hoffner and Wadsworth would finish in that order with the same time for fifth and sixth. Tangi and Thumel would finish just seconds behind for some really, 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 really close racing um, in the places of fourth or fifth through eighth. Yeah, so. I was just looking at that. The the race for the fifth place spot, there was one, two, three, like four of them. Just four, all, all within five seconds of each other. Yeah. 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 Um, moving on to the women's race, um, I, I, I don't have, I don't need to talk about how the race was won because it was dominance from the front. None other than Carla Williams, who we have continued to talk about this season, continue to talk up this season. I'm looking at the time right now. Wow. Um, truly awesome performance. 17th overall against pro men um, in the top 12 in the early parts of the race and finishing just 45, 46 minutes down, um, seven hours, 29 minutes. Um, she was Almost an hour up on uh, Mary Chandler, uh, who finished in second place in eight hours and 24 minutes out of Team Adventure in Alabama. And Simona Vincenziova out of Virginia, she was about another 20 minutes down. Brenda Simmel and Linda Shin were fourth and fifth, very uh, close. Um, actually, third, fourth, and fifth all finished there within about 45 seconds of each other. Um, Brenda Simrel and her husband, Lee, who races in the 50-plus division, raced the entire course on cyclocross bikes. 
Um, of course, you know, Brenda has said that she is not out to defend the NUE this year. They're not even sure she's going to do enough to even qualify for four. They're looking for new challenges, looking for new things. And with that in mind, they decided, you know, with as much gravel as on this course and the trails not being super technical, what if you did a cyclocross race, 70 miles of gravel um, with about five miles of pavement, and that could that could really make a difference. Um, unfortunately for her, it didn't work out that well. Um, in the end, mountain bikes definitely faster on the course. How's uh, the gravel? Is it is it soft, thick gravel, or it's you know it's very sparse. Unless there's a section where they have put down new gravel, and occasionally they do, yeah. um, depending on land management, whatever. It's mostly packed dirt, is what it is. Okay. Um, really, really hard pack. It's like it's clay, really. Sometimes um, that, like in this, not to jump topics, but the Lutzen yeah. 99ers got a ton of gravel. And I rode alongside of a, a couple guys on gravel bikes last year. But right. the gravel's so thick and soft on it, every downhill, I I outrolled them. Yeah. Because they, those, oh, those yeah, gravel bikes were too you, narrow, they were sinking right in. Right. And you can definitely outturn them. You're always going to be able to outturn somebody, um, you know, going around corners and things like that. Yeah. Um, the one thing that, that uh, Carla Williams did very, very, very well, and it's something that Gordon Wadsworth does, does very well in his single speed division races, is that she was able to stay in that lead group and immediately separate herself. So now she is in a fast moving group that just because of who you're around, you're you're make you're putting time into the people behind you, yeah. Um, and so you know, if you're in the single speed division like Gordon sometimes is, he he uses that to his advantage. You know, he's not going to be able to necessarily be pushing the pace on some of the downhills because he's going to be spun out. But he is able to draft people that are doing so and um, make up time with the people that are behind him. So by pushing the pace, she was able to stay in actually the lead group on that initial section of road. And actually push the pace um, early and hard enough in the trails to stay ahead. And when she actually finally broke out onto the gravel, she was riding much of the time um, with Bradley Cobb, who actually ended up winning the men's single speed division. So she was definitely well up the order and um, using pe- the people around her to kind of keep that pace going. Um, and speaking of single speed, so there was more than a little bit of controversy in this division. Um, in the lead up to the race, the question was whether Gordon uh, Wadsworth was going to race single speed or geared. And in the days just prior, um, it was obvious he was going to race geared, opening the door for someone to match him with his win at True Grit and therefore stay even in the series. Now, the other disadvantage Gordon had going in was that, one, he he generally hasn't done very well in the as well in the geared as he has in the single speed. He's usually top five, top seven, but he has yet to really, he, even though he has won, last year he won Kohuta on a single speed, was the fastest placer, um, beating Brian Schwarm in a sprint. Um, he has yet to win on a geared bike, win one of these NUE races. The other thing that had the disadvantage he had going for him was that he was on a brand new bike. He literally had built his bike up on the Wednesday previous to the race and so probably not so super familiar getting used to it possibly yeah and i mean 
hundred miles on a brand new bike, you got to figure there's probably going to be a few muscle deficiencies that may play out. Do you think the- that uh, if you ride a lot of single speed, because I don't know, I've never ridden a single yeah. speed, uh, yeah. and then switch to a geared bike and you're on a heavier bike now, mm-hmm. does it? Do you have a tendency to ignore your gears sometimes and just grind stuff out? And so now you're yes. you're basically riding single speed on a heavier bike. Yes, and that's what um, Gordon has actually said that you know that just it's out of too, habit, too much to think about. Yeah, you know, like you're just not when used you're to on thinking a about speed, shifting. You've got you've got what you are on when you're you know the, with a single speed, yeah. and so you're pushing every downhill, knowing that you got to carry that momentum off the next. Now that becomes a good, great advantage. Like if you train on a single speed and then race on a geared bike, and you can get past that familiarity of shifting when you need to. Just the it makes you a more efficient rider. You know pushing every downhill to gain the speed to use it on the uphill. Yeah. That's a, that's a, that's a great way of doing things on top of that, you know, rolling through corners a lot more, you know, risking the like efficiency, learning the, what the, yeah. right. Learning what you, so you don't have to, to pedal as much. Correct. Um, that said, Gordon, uh, Gordon thinks that his issue with racing in the open and not doing quite as well as he has in the single speed is mostly due to, you know, he's never had to think about that in a race situation, shifting, not shifting. Um, and, you know, he has said even there have been times when he has just said, screw it, and just put it into a gear that feels like what his single speed gear is and just ridden it. Right. Just like, you know, 40 miles in, be like, you know, <laughs> I'll just put this in my, you know, yeah. 3218 and just roll with it. Um, so, um, but anyhow, with him not racing, Single speed of Kohata kind of opened up the field to a whole bunch of power players. Of course, uh, Donald Powers has been having an amazing season so far out of Pittsburgh, was at the event and looking to capitalize on um, an open race. Um, he has done very well previously, won Shenandoah last year, and so was looking to really put his stamp on his first race in the NUE as he had not gone to True Grit. Um, lots of other racers were there because John Haddock was there who had raced at True Grit. Scott Rusinko out of Asheville, who had done very well so far this year, was there and um, looking to do very well in the NUE. Um, it was also difficult to figure out Randy Kerr, who was leading on a single speed, but he was racing actually in the Masters division. He was actually racing there at that front lead group, racing in the top 15 for a large section of the day. Um, But at a specific part of the course, Donald Powers, Randy Kerr, Scott Racinko, John Haddock, Kip Bice, all missed that one turn. Now, they weren't all necessarily riding together. Several of them were, but they all missed that left-hand turn coming out of eight five. The same one, yeah, the same turn. Um, some of these guys had ridden this course before, but I don't know if they rode it last year, which is when the big course change happened. But in the meantime, Brad Cobb, who was racing in about fifth place or so, who is very familiar with the course and in the past has done very well, top three several years now at the shorter distance, Big Frog was racing the 100-mile race this year. Um, He is not necessarily going to be racing in the 100-mile series all season. I heard from several people that he has said that, you know, he just knows these trails very well, knows this 
the geography very well. These are almost his home trails. And so he knew that he, what he needed to do to race single speed. And so did so at the hundred mile event. Um, but he knew where to make that turn. So he made the turn and immediately went from fifth or sixth place to first making no navigation areas and, and was now storming toward the finish. Um, Further confused in the field due to the single speed riders now coming onto the tail end of the 100K field. So now the 100K guys that have finally corrected their error and come back are now encountering single speed racers that are actually in the 100K race and they're not sure where they're sitting in the field. Um, the, the other thing that, that kind of confused things was that Randy Kerr in the field, he was powerfully climbing on the start climb and then kind of back and forth and then everyone realized that oh wait he's racing masters so in the end bradley cobb actually wins kip vice um and bradley cobb races for motor mile out of chattanooga tennessee um kip vice um out of colorado springs get second just a minute and a half down so bradley cobb wins in 726 price is just a minute and a half down um another minute and a half later scott rusinko um, James Thompson, 731, so just another two minutes. All of those guys, all within just some pretty tight racing. Seven, eight minutes. And they were kind of all passing each other because some of them had turned around earlier when they realized their mistake than others. Okay. On top of that, um, Donald Powers, who I felt was kind of the favorite with Gordon not in the picture. When he missed that wrong turn, it took him a little longer to second-guess himself and turn around, and so he didn't. Knowing that that part of the course eventually meets up with the other section of the of the course where it kind of split off, opted to ride that direction, probably a poor choice um, depending on where he was, but it made the course significantly longer. And he just plummeted through the single speed field, ended up finishing seventh, eighth, something like that in the single speed race, but probably put on an extra 10 or 12 miles. Um, So um, similarly, the same thing happened with Randy Kerr in the single speed race or in the master's race, I'm sorry, racing on a single speed. He had done some back and forth and actually was leading the master's division on that early part of the race going up the start climb and the lead with the leaders mixed himself in among the top 12. So he was with that, that lead group. Um, and Clayton thought he was just gone. Clayton thought he was going to get second. Jeff Clayton, who I have is my pick this year for winning the NUE master's division did as best he could, but was just plowing on, not knowing how far down he was. He would catch Kerr literally in the parking lot as they approach the finish, probably just a half mile or so and pass him. Um, but then find out later that Kerr had actually disqualified himself. He'd missed a turn was short on the mileage. Not sure where it had all gone, but in the end, Jeff Clayton actually wins in seven hours, 27 minutes. Uh, um, John Schaub of us military in eight hours, 11 minutes and Steven Leibovitz out of motor mile racing in eight hours and 12 minutes. David Jolin, who I've mentioned previously on the show, 817, and then Alan Miner, just one minute further back for the top five. 
It's too bad um, on the core stuff, especially. Yeah, I, mean, I know exactly where that was because that, that actually, travel a long ways to get to a race too is just yeah. yeah and there's it sucks. There's different ways of looking at that, and we've discussed this many times on here. You know, um, when backcountry racing really started, and the NUE was kind of leading that whole backcountry thing. A lot of people probably argued that navigation was part of the race itself, but I think as we get to the point now where um, this distance is a little more normal and perhaps, you know, one on the promoters expectations. Some promoters are very, very clear about that. Right. But if if navigation's part of it, then it has to be clearly laid out that, Hey, you better have uh, the map downloaded in your GPS. Uh, Not, you you know, there may be markings missing different kinds. And so this race did not have any type of, vandalism to it um there wasn't any vandalism that wasn't a okay it was just that one turn was poorly marked and the people that did very well um knew the course whether whether they knew the course or with people who knew the course or had ridden the course in preview last year when they changed the course uh you know that's depending on the individual but because there's there's rate like gravel races you know that They'll pass out a cue card or yeah. whatever sometimes, but it's very clear what? that you're responsible for finding your way in the court. What I'm amazed by, um, and this isn't a knock on the folks that run the Cajadas trail in sports, um, is that they have, when you're at Cajada, they have a huge number of volunteers. Every um, part of the course, every aid station you go into has large groups of volunteers helping you out. And I have not a problem with that, but be able to at that section where you've got a merging of two races, as well as a section of the course that is repeated by the hundred milers. So you've got people in the hundred miler coming in both directions and a section of the 60 mile course that is, is where they actually make the turn to go back. It just seems to me that putting one or two volunteers at that spot, to help people out, um, to direct people or just to announce which way you go. Yeah. Just I, hindsight's twenty twenty, And I, I'm sure that that has been already discussed, but again, I hate to see end results come from someone missing a part of the course. Oh, absolutely. And I, I hate to, I hate to see somebody, uh, you know, travel 10, 12 hours, right. or especially, to get to a race. especially, on, yeah. especially on gravel road. Yeah, you know it's, it's not it's not on the trails. It's on the on yep. gravel road sections, yep. and that part of the course, there's not a ton of gravel roads cutting in or around there. You know, it's not like you have a gravel road every you know quarter mile. I mean, right. it, it's so hilly in that area that there's only a few choices you can make. Um, it just seems to me that putting somebody at every intersection, and there's only on this course seven or eight turns once you're on the gravel roads, and it just seems you put seven or eight volunteers out there might help things but no i mean uh yeah that said this course is exactly the same as last year this course was available for download onto your gps i you know there's that argument too Um, and this course they didn't change it and it was on the map at the it was on the map at registration where you make that turn so i am gonna start um on that note putting downloading the the course gps's if they're available and put them on i i tried that function on my garmin for a 
a gravel ride about a month and a half ago or, or something like yeah. that. And it worked pretty well. Yeah. And that, that turn, um, from the arguing for, from the promoter is it is actually when you are coming back to make that turn from after doing the loop, um, that turn is on a downhill section. It's on a gentle downhill section coming out of an aid station. So you're probably about a mile or so from an aid station. So people are trying to catch back up. There's no doubt that the lead groups are moving 20 miles an hour or more. A lot of them probably have their heads down. It's a long straight section and it's kind of hidden by like some overgrowth. So, um, you know, if you've got your head down, you can't see that turn coming up until you're almost right on it. And then, and then, I mean, it's a normal width road that you would turn onto, but because of the overgrowth, you don't see it until you're, until it opens up for that turn. So I think that's what happens all the time. Anytime I've had a, an issue where I've caught myself having to turn around or yeah. missed a turn or something, it's when you're, when you're marking a course as a, you know, a promoter, or, you know, going out there, your head's not down racing. And so you're, you just assume, oh, it's covered, right? But right. when you're racing, your head's down, you know, you're, you're focused and it's yeah. a lot easier and, to miss stuff when you're racing. You know, and, the, and there's all like, you have to think about how you would mark that. Um, if you would put um, on the opposite side, if you're coming back into the course, put stuff on the ground, then as people are coming from the opposite direction, they're going to see that and be like, wait a minute, did I miss the turn? So uh, there's confusion no yeah, matter how you do it. Yeah. You know, and you can't put, you know, big, huge signs, you know, a paragraph of if you're coming from the aid station and you've completed the loop, this is where you make your turn um, because there's there's a choice there. Because if, you're, if you haven't gone down done that loop, that's not where you make the turn. So yeah. it's it's confusing. Um, but I think maybe some of that could have been alleviated by a volunteer at that spot. Hindsight's twenty twenty. Yeah, um, always is. So, um, but anyhow, there. I hate to see that the controversies were there on that note. I'm going to pat myself on the back here. Um, who did I pick to win the NUE this year in the women's division? Nice work. Carla Williams. Who did I pick to win the men's division? Dylan Johnson. Who did I pick to win masters? Jeff Clayton. Um, so I guy. picked all the, all the correct. I did. I mean, with that note, <laughs> With that note, I was fist pumping myself. Mark, when I saw the results. <laughs> you deserve an extra cookie in your last drop bag. That's right. Uh, I, 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 I think the over. I think um, some of these guys that are doing really well so far. I don't know how anyone can beat Carla Williams at this point, unless we start to see um, perhaps some of the pro women, um, you know, Vicky Barclays or. Um, someone like that coming into the, into the series. Um, you know, Vicky always seems to make an appearance at Shenandoah and, um, definitely in wilderness where, which is her home trails, but she's, yes. it's been a while since she's actually done, um, the full NUE. It's still a little early, but, uh, um, I mean, fin- finishing an hour up on. Yeah. I mean, yeah. that's, that's nuts. That's nuts. Yeah. So, so yeah, congratulations on everybody that did really well, um, or anybody that completed Kohata. Um, seemed like a gorgeous day. Uh, the rain never really materialized until really late in the afternoon, and so it seemed like a, it was a gorgeous day to race. Cool. So, yeah, good coverage, man. Thanks. Um, 
you want to talk about the uh, the whiskey fifty? Yeah, let's talk about the whiskey fifty. Um, and of course, uh, before we get into that, whiskey fifty is part of the epic rides, uh, epic rides three race series now potentially expanding to much more than that next year. Um, it also includes a Grand Junction Off-Road. Now, as we went and started recording this, Grand Junction Off-Road had just finished. Yeah, so we don't have any of the stories. We don't have all the details yet, but that will come up in the very next episode, hopefully in the next hmm, week or so. Yeah, and if uh, so. you are at Grand Junction Off-Road and you have some race recap, race stories, send us an email. And that's not, and that's not directed at just pros. If you were yeah. racing uh, amateur elite stuff um, on the Saturday, it's a sandwich between the the fat tire crit and the actual off road event itself on Sunday in the in the elite field. If you race the amateur race on Saturday, let us know how it went, what the trail conditions were like. Um, it's always interesting to get the perspective of people that are racing, whether that's for the win or middle of the pack or just to finish their. Um, at the tail end. So. Yeah, yeah. If you, I mean, if you wrote a recap or something for your blog or something, send us a link. Uh, Steve at mountainbikeradio dot com or Mark at mountainbikeradio dot com. So how did it go down? Um, that's I've always wanted to do that whole weekend. It, you know what? See, when you look, it, it they look like just weekends that are just a riot. Yeah. Um, they look like with the, the the pros do a crit on Friday night, uh, and then the non pros race on Saturday, the course, and then the pros race on Sunday. And and I've I don't know a lot about them about the races. I just know when I've looked them up, or you've talked about them, or you see what online they look like. They do one heck of a job. The whole town kind of gets around it. It seems like, and uh, uh, it sounds like a great weekend. Sounds and looks like a great weekend. Yeah, but uh, the, and they're uh, stepping up their uh, their own promotion. Um, I posted a link from the Grand Junction Off Road this past weekend on the Last Aid Station Facebook page. They're actually covering it um, with video, so you can actually go on it and live tune in to um, the races as it's going on. Now it's not going to be your you know NBC Sports kind of coverage, but. It, you're still getting um, different points on the course. Who's leading um, the race announcing the, they covered the fat tire crit, I think very well. Um, and, and so it was almost like being there. Um, if you had a six pack of beer. With you. Did you watch it? <laughs> I, I did. I watched the, uh, the women's crit. It was uh, very well done. Um, and they, I'm not sure who they have doing the announcing, but um, very well done. Um, kept the crowd informed on stuff that was going on on the on the course and explaining how some of the racing was going on of course it's kind of a weird animal that you're doing a very short crit and it's 20 minutes plus three laps or something like that but on mountain bikes mountain bikes so speaking of they're required to have wide tires so they're not racing on mountain bikes they stuck road tires on they're actually on they're they're on the race they're mountain bike race yes right yeah yep so I don't have uh, you know any actions that broke down in the men's crit, but on the women's crit, I heard that uh, Rose Grant and Chloe Woodruff had a pretty close call with a, a pedestrian that stepped out c- coming oh. out of the corner in the in the course, and uh, Rose had to lock up her uh, lock up her brakes, and basically they split the pedestrian uh, coming around. You imagine how fast they're going on right. pavement. 
but it uh, especially it, that course, which is um, has a large significant uphill and a long significant downhill. So there are parts of that course where they're going very fast on mountain bikes on pavement that were not meant to go that fast on pavement. Um, you know, there there's sections of that downhill side that uh, 40, 45 miles an hour probably. Oh, dang, sections. I didn't realize that. Yeah. So Holy smokes. Yeah. I'm uh, lucky to hit that on a road bike on a yeah. downhill with a tailwind. <laughs> At one point, uh, Rose Grant had put in a put an attack on that climb. I think it was, and uh, Evelyn Dong went with her, and but eventually Evelyn took off. Evelyn ended up winning the winning the women's crit. Okay. Um, I, Rose Grant. Rose Grant has really kind of she won uh, marathon nationals. It was either last year or the year before that, and. I was just under the impression because I'd never really even heard of her other than, you know, a couple of races here and there. Um, and I thought it was kind of a little bit of a fluke considering, you know, all the pro women that might have been able to come over from XC racing or whatever. And I thought maybe it was a little bit of a fluke. Maybe there weren't, maybe the, a lot of the women were racing overseas at the world cup or whatever, but yeah. she has really proven that she is, a worthy national champion. Well, um, speaking of that, very well, yeah, yeah. Let's, why, we'll, let's talk about the women's open race on Sunday then. Yeah, <laughs> and actually, you know, you had uh, Chloe Woodruff and Rose Grant both racing for uh, Stan's No Tubes and Pivot Cycles. Mm-hmm. Right, uh, there was a point where uh, Chloe Woodruff had put an attack on pretty early in the first downhill, and Rose Grant went with her. With uh, Magali Roche, hope I pronounce that right. Uh, you know, took off with her. There's, so there's the three of them. Uh, uh, Evelyn Dong eventually caught them, put on an attack of her own, and just started stringing everybody out. And uh, Rose Grant ended up catching and passing Evelyn about halfway down the last descent, and then uh, pretty much hammered it to the finish. So Rose Grant ended up winning the women's open on Sunday as well in three hours and 50 minutes with Evelyn Dong coming in second uh, three minutes later uh, with Cannondale 360 fly and Chloe Woodruff coming in third at three hours and 56 minutes again from Stan's No Tubes Pivot Sweet um, that's that's one of those courses that I mean it's got some iconic climbs you know, I forget they have Skull Climb and um, Skull Valley, I believe, and things like that. I've always wanted to go out. And, even if I don't do the race, I would love to, even if it's, you know, I'm out there in the middle of the summer, just go out there and to ride the course. And I guess the course now that the uh, Prescott has gotten so much behind that and such a big event for the town, they've actually gone out and permanently marked the course. So anytime oh, awesome. you just go out there and ride it, you know, so they got permanent markers out there to tell you how to, how to do the whole course. There is for a fifty-mile race. There's over six thousand feet of climbing. Yeah, that's that's substantial. And it's that's, not it's not uh, you know hundred two hundred footers stacked together. It's, no, no, no. You know, it's it's got um, the there's climb some significant of, climbs. Yeah, the climb out of Skull Valley always seems to be where that race kind of breaks down at. That seems to be where a lot of the moves are made because it is long. Yeah, there's a um, climb. It basically, you start climbing around mile 31 at right. 
must be down around 4,000 feet, maybe. Yeah. And then you climb for the next 11 to 12 miles until you peak out over yeah. 7,000 feet. Yeah, and that's, like, that, that, that's the climb that everybody talks about. That's where it... There's it, like one little blip the, in that climb where you drop down for maybe a half a mile and then you mm-hmm. back up again. Yeah, and the, the technical downhill, at least at the very top of that, is um, there can be moves made up there, but then it kind of... You're not going to make up more than 30, per sec, 30 seconds on the rest of the course because it is... Um, it just seems like everybody kind of goes that same speed. There's a... There's a terminal velocity, I guess, on sections of that course that you know you really can't go much faster on, um, yeah, especially on the downhill into the finish. So, yeah, in the in the men's race, the uh, the lead broke down to about twelve guys when they had entered that first set of single track, um, and it was reported the pace wasn't super extreme, but it was fast enough to uh, to get a small group off the front. Um, I guess what is known the wall, and I don't know the course. And in, uh, do you know which one of those climbs is the wall? Um, I think it's one of the early ones, one of the beginning ones. Yeah. yeah. But um, anyways, the front twelve was uh, now down to seven after the wall with uh, okay. Howard Grot putting on the pressure. Yeah, uh, defending champion. Yeah, Jeremiah Bishop. He started to uh, fall off the pace. I think he was sitting in about sixth with Jeremy Martin. Uh, right on his wheel. So now you had a lead group of five with Howard Gratz, uh, both Todd and Troy Wells, Spencer Paxson, and Ben Sontag taken off the front into feed station number one. Just before feed station number two, um, Jeremy Martin was able to pull around Bishop and attempted to bridge the gap back to that lead group of five. Uh, but he, he wasn't able to cover the entire gap, found himself about 10 seconds down when they hit the uh, descent towards Skull Valley. And this is where they're going to drop back down to that 4,000 feet elevation to start the long climb out. Uh, Jeremy Mountain found himself in one heck of a chase in an unfamiliar descent and reported making a few mistakes that would cost him some more time and would end up finding himself back about 45 seconds off the lead group of five by the time he started that next climb. Uh, Martin hammered the climb, gaining some ground back and catching Troy Wells about halfway up the climb, uh, continued pushing the pace. Uh, he put, uh, but stayed conscious of keeping some fuel in the bank for remaining sections of the race. Uh, Jeremy Martin continued to work the climbs, would reel in Spencer Paxson at the Cramp Hill climb. Uh, Spencer stayed hot on Martin's tail as Martin time trialed it back to town, eventually found himself with enough gap to cruise to the finish line after the final pavement climb uh he ended up with howard gratz winning in three hours and 13 minutes uh racing for specialized you had ben sontag from uh, cliff bar and niner bikes finishing second in three hours and 17 minutes with todd wells finishing fourth in three hours 18 minutes with sram and uh, jeremy martin finishing fourth in three hours, 22 minutes uh, from Focus Bikes. And fifth place, Spencer Paxson, three hours and 22 minutes from Kona. You, Jeremiah Bishop ended up, eventually fell all the way back to 17th place, while uh, Brian Matter had actually had a, I think he had a, a, a slow start, but then ended up pulling himself up to seventh by the mm-hmm. race finish. Modern's been doing really well this year. Um, he's 
you know, he's been making a lot of the, he did a big training camp um, out West, um, Tucson. God, I think he was out there for, he's been out there for a long month. Time. Yeah. Or if you more. follow his, follow his yep. log write-ups or anything. Yeah. So he's, um, I, for not having a national name, like, you know, the Todd Wells and Jeremiah Bishops of the world, he is doing very well. Um, especially, you know, he's not on one of these big national factory teams. He's, you know, on a local, uh, whatever Midwest team um, that yeah. um, he's I've having spoken to him before. He, he's very well supported. He's, he doesn't have any. He's arguments. always, he's but always he, in it though. Right. And he does very, average, very, very well. well. Yeah. So um, let, let, I forgot to mention the uh, big frog going back to the Kohata race, um, going back to the big frog, which is oh, now yeah. part of the national series. Um, I just wanted to, to mention, I don't have a ton of stories other than I kind of know how these races played out. And so, as we mentioned previously, that that race is um, a lot more single track. So, you know, nearly uh, probably about 50 percent of that race is single track. Um, it does the same. It does the exact same section of single track that the 100 race does. Um, it then heads out onto a shorter loop of gravel. Then comes back and does the final single track that the hundred mile race does. This is a very cool thing and something that I wish that more races in the NUE did is that they separate the 100 K from the 100 mile race. I was going to ask you that Mark, if they started together or not, I I've, they, they, um, separate this race. Um, and it, and it seems like looking across the NUE for those that have both a 100 miler and a shorter distance race, it's about 50, 50, whether they separate it or not. Like Mohican, for example, is not separated. And so you're racing a lot of people that are racing in the hundred K and you don't really split off until further into the course, maybe aid station two or three before you're split off. And there's actually, you know, a split in the course where if you're a hundred mile, you go left. And if you're, you go, you know, if you're a shorter distance, you go right and start kind of heading back. I like that if you're going to, if you're going to have a full national series, I think that you need to separate it when there's going to be cash prizes and series prizes. I'd like to be able to race against people I know that are there now. Yes. If you're racing the hundred K and generally they start second, 30 minutes down or so you're eventually going to catch people, the back markers, but it's going to be pretty obvious by the difference in speed who's racing which race until the split. But well, I like you got some momentum and you're already riding when they come up yeah. on you. And so you kind of, yeah. but when you all take off in a mass start like that, I mean, you even separate them 10 minute start difference or something, right? Right. Um, I, I, I like it. I like separating the race. Um, I would love to see nothing more than for us to separate the divisions. If you're going a national series with the prizes that the NUE does now that their cash prizes aren't all that great, as far as like other, you know, like comparing it to Epic Rides or something like that, as far as podium places and placings and things like that. However, they are racing for an all expense paid trip to La Ruta at the end of the season and races um, halfway through the season for, you know, to go to Costa Rica to do other races. There are pretty big incentives to do very well in the season. And in, in the series, I mean, I would love them to separate the single speed and the women's and the not maybe completely in four different divisions, but at least something that's going to be a little more equitable. I mean, a lot of the races in the single speed and the 
women's and even the masters races are kind of impacted by the pace of the open men's by those people in the single speed race or the women's race getting a toe by a front group of the elite men racing or the masters racing up in the front group, how would they have done if they didn't have that? And if you're going to be that far in front of your competitors, you're going to be doing it on your own versus getting a toe from um, a teammate who's racing a different division. It's just a different perspective. And that's just the way the racing is. And that's part of the game now, Um, you know, and everybody takes advantage of it. You know, Carla Williams certainly takes advantage of it. You know, Gordon Wadsworth certainly takes advantage of it. I'm sure Jeff Clayton takes advantage of it. So it's part of the racing, but it would be, probably put a different twist on it if those divisions were separated somewhat. Yeah, if those take take the, you know, top top 5 to 10 single speeders and send them out all at once on their own, right? Make them Right. Yeah, if you're going to make them sorted out in that first climb together, right? Right. Yeah. versus being mixed in with yep. 50 other riders. So anyhow, in the race itself, um Jenna Blanford of Project Pedal out of Louisville, Kentucky, um who Last year had um, had had her teammate win this event. Did very very well. Um, ended up winning the race. Um, she had kind of concentrated on the early part of the season in doing um, this race and targeting it, um, and she ended up winning uh, by I think she won by three minutes over Mary Penta, also her teammate. Um, kind of had pulled away in the last little bit on the uh, fire roads. Um, her teammate who took second actually won the race last year. Um, and then Lisa Randall, who is the race promoter of Fool's Gold, um, she took third place. Um, seven minutes later, she races for Super Sport Athletic Wear. Um, pretty tight racing. Um, they They seem to... They seem to always do have the women seem to race very tightly in this race um, over the past couple of years. It seems like they've done very well in the men's race. Um, very, very, very close racing until um, they made the turn to make the the trail back about 40 miles into the 65 mile race. And Andrew Dillman took advantage of a climb to separate himself from Michael Danish, who previously had raced the NUE series in the full, as far as the whole series last year had done um, relatively well, top 10 overall. I'm not sure if Michael's racing in that to race the whole series in the hundred K or the hundred or the shorter distance NUE shorter marathon series. Um, it'd be interesting if he does to bring some of the speed and maybe some consistency. Now, Andrew Dillman wins in four hours and 16 minutes. Now Dillman, um, if you know anything about his history is the current national champion in collegiate cyclocross. Um, and Michael Danish, of course, had done very well in the NUE. He finished about six minutes down and Dillman's own teammate, both racing for Think Green, arrived about eight minutes later, taking third place in eight hours and 31 minutes. In the single-speed division, man, talk about domination. Dirty Harry's out of Beaver Falls, Pennsylvania, knows how to groom uh, single-speed racers. Um, in the past, uh, people that have come through that shop and that team have included Jerry Flug, Donald Powers. And so for some reason, 
They seem to attract the single speed racers from Pittsburgh and seem to support them very well. But Jim Litzinger of Napoleon Elite Racing, um, sponsored by Dirty Harry's, wins in four hours and 32 minutes, 30 minutes up on second place. Um, just a dominating performance. Four hours and 32 minutes is just 15 minutes back of the elite winners. Um, so uh, very, very strong performance. He ends up um, on the top step of the podium. Peyton Randolph of uh, Team Trek out of Columbus, four hours and 51 minutes. Um, and Andrew Aaron Schellmeyer, also out of Pittsburgh, finishes in third, about four minutes back of second place to take the third spot on the podium. In the Masters 50-plus division, uh, James Raley of Oakland, Maryland, was the first, completing the course in five hours and 11 minutes. Um, Jimmy Carp was second out of Palm Bay, Florida. I'm sure the course was a bit of a shock to him. And then seven minutes later, Chris Reedy of Velo Sports out of Asheville took third in five hours and 31 minutes. So um, don't have a whole lot of the stories, but um, that to cover it, though. even though it's only it's only a marathon distance. And I, I say that only oh a marathon, like 60 you know, some miles. Oh, right, right. It's still <laughs> 60 some miles. I mean, you're still racing for these guys are racing for four and a half, five hours at the top. Oh, that's, I mean, that's crazy. That's, I mean, when I started, when I got back in and did, uh, I think, I don't know who I was telling this the other day, but the first race I did when I got back into it was the Shawamagon 40, which, you know, at the time I think took me a little over three hours. That was a crazy endurance race for me. It, we're all at different different places in right. in what we're doing and so um all all of its endurance racing yeah oh, it's still endurance yeah no matter what you how you how you pack it in there it's definitely endurance yeah. um i want to bring up an, another race that occurred out here just want to really briefly go over it yeah um it's the bootlegger 100 it's part of the gravel series here in north carolina we've talked about love valley roubaix it's part of that series uh, put on by blue mountain revival um, the one thing that I want to talk about is how this race played out. Um, so Reed Baloney, who's done very well in the past here, um, and we've mentioned him before and just having these big, fabulous breakaways that um, go on forever. Super hilly course. I don't remember what the total thing are, but there was there are two major, major climbs on this course. Um, but anyhow, the uh, Reed Baloney ended up taking a flyer early on in the race um, ends up uh, had somebody tagging along with him for a little bit um, before uh, I think he had Owen shot with him early on in the race um, and pretty soon dispatched him probably only 20 miles. And so 20, 30 miles into the race and pretty soon Reed Baloney's on his own was still 70 miles to go ends up soloing the whole way doing the 100-mile gravel race in six hours and 46 minutes. The impressive thing behind was is on the globe climb, there were, um, which is one of the big two big climbs on the course, um, Nina Lachlan, who we've mentioned on here before, who is a CTS coach, also races for the Dallas DNA Pro Cycling Team. You've mentioned her uh, a couple times in the last... Yes, and um, she had separated... Um, she had just through attrition on that globe climb was pretty soon riding just with 
Um, another CTS coach, uh, a friend of hers, Josh Whitmore, who I've mentioned several times before. And the next thing you know, there's just two of them chasing Reed Baloney. And that's how it finished. Reed Baloney first. Um, and uh, Nina Lachlan actually takes second place in the event with Josh Whitmore in third. Nice. Uh, they would actually catch Owen Schott. Um, I talked to Josh Whitmore, who said that they caught up the Owen shot and thought he was going to tag on, and and they said they just went by him and he was just bonked, you know, staring at <laughs> staring at the ground kind of thing, uh, kind of with twenty miles to go. So first place, Reed Baloney, uh, second place um, in the men's division of Josh Whitmore, and third place to Owen Shot. Of course, Nina Lachlan of DNA. Uh, Dallas DNA Pro Cycling or visit Dallas DNA Pro Cycling actually wins the women's division second overall. Valerie Matina takes second in the women's division nearly two hours and 40 minutes later. And then Andrea Stork in third, another hour down. Well, so just I pulling up the results. Yeah. Nina was only 14 minutes off of Reed. Right. Yeah. And um, in talking, I talked to Josh after the race. Uh, Josh Whitmore, and he said that there were several points in the race where he was afraid she was going to drop him, uh, specifically <laughs> on the climb. So um, awesome. very, very, very powerful um, performance. She's in her, I think she's in her first year as a road pro. That's what Visit Dallas DNA Pro Cycling. Um, but she also works full time as a Carmichael Training Systems coach. And actually, one, two, three there, Baloney, Whitmore, and Lachlan are all CTS coaches out of the same office there in Brevard, North Carolina. So um, pretty. I just had to bring that up because when I heard how well she had done um, second place overall, shocking. Um, very cool. Yeah, very cool I thing. think last week we, or a couple of weeks ago in our last show, we had somewhat of the same. Yes. Uh, Rachel Langdon was only... 15 minutes or something like that off of the men's winner for the Barry Roubaix. Right. Yeah. Yeah. And, uh, Nina Lachlan, she was the one that I'd mentioned previously that had had a, um, kind of a race with Carla Williams when they'd both been racing a gravel race, um, and had finished within minutes of each other. But of course they didn't know it because they were in two separate groups, but had raced finished within two minutes or three minutes of each other without ever actually racing each other specifically. Okay. So, so I'll tell you what, well, we're running really long on time compared to what we were trying to get to. But yeah. speaking of early breakaways, uh, I don't have like a big race coverage here, but I yeah. got to mention the El Manzo yeah. gravel race. Uh, do, do you know anything about the El Manzo, Mark? Um, I, I know a little bit about it. Um, I know they had some, um, issues with promotion in the last couple of years. They were actually thinking about ending it and then someone stepped up and yeah, um, I, think, I know I think it was kind ended of, and somebody did step up. Yeah. Right. Yeah. I know it's kind of come out of that. Um, they have a lot of, um, they have a big fan following, especially with people oh, yeah. that are looking toward dirty Kanza and, um, you know, those kind of events. So it's from my understanding, it's become a pretty big event. Uh, down, I think it's in South east minnesota right but uh it's a hundred mile there's a lot of climbing i don't know the exact elevation of it uh but there was the weathers you know can you can either be wet or windy in that area of minnesota is 30 mile an hour wind gusts a lot of 
side winds, but Adam Bergman took off at 10 miles in, in a breakaway. And everybody kind of just sat up and looked around and like, is he seriously 10 miles in? Yeah. But, uh, yeah, he, he, he stuck it for the next 90 miles, soloed it all the way to the end with an 11 minute lead. <laughs> wow. <laughs> wow. Yeah. Pretty wild. Especially with those types of wins out there running solo. Cause there was, there was packs of five to seven, you know, riders at any given time in a yeah. chase. And, uh, there's a, there's a climb at like the 90 mile mark that peaks out at like a 20% grade. Oh, okay. Just, so it's kind of a hilly course then. Oh yeah. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Um, but it's, it's fast. There's this big, uh, there's a Creek bed crossing and luckily this year it was dry, but there's been years in the past where it was like waist deep. Huh. So that's about it for race coverage. I think until, uh, <laughs> next time, or at least that filled up plenty of time. The, uh, Let's talk about Mohican, Mark. I'm, I've never been there. I believe you've been there. Yes. Uh, I've never even ridden in Ohio. I've, uh, I've only driven through that area of Ohio once or twice. What's it, what's it like? What's the course like? What, what should I expect? And I'm, I guess I'm going to ask these questions because I'm sure I'm yeah. not the only guy that's going there for the first time. Right. Um, so Mohican um, is an interesting course because the first time I did it, I'm like, yeah, NUE, Ohio. How hard can it be? Um, <laughs> um, so is it climby like Shenandoah? Is it climby like wilderness or fool's gold? No, there's no mountains in Ohio, but there are plenty of hills and there are plenty of short, steep hills. Um, and a lot of them are, you know, roads that have, they've kind of just evolved into roads that originally were just like, tractor paths and so that okay. they were straight up a hill they're not graded they're just from the bottom to the top in the shortest line possible and so some of the climbs there are steep and they're on gravel and there's plenty of climbs on that course where you know you're leaning too far forward or you know pedaling you know with a little bit too much aggression that you just spin the tires um really? and there and the the start is where a lot of people get themselves into trouble. Um, you know, all NUEs seem That's, to have. I'm bad at that, man. I, <laughs> I'm, I'm, I get so I, like a part of and it. I speak- want to test myself, and like I just blow myself up. Right, and I'm speaking from experience. <laughs> <laughs> um, that the so every NUE event has something that kind of allows the abilities and fitness to shake out. Um, the pack, especially when you're dealing with um, an event as big as the NUE events. When this this event in the past has had upwards of 700 riders in it, and they start the 100k and the 100 miler course together, and so you're really big fields. Um, so this course starts in downtown Loudonville. It runs right through down down through Main Street, and within a quarter mile of the start, which actually is downhill, just mildly downhill. So the race speed picks up pretty quickly. I have seen crashes there, um, just tangled bars. People trying to make up their entire race in the first 400 meters. Um, as it exits the town, it immediately hits a punchy climb that is no more than a half mile long but grades of somewhere around 17 18 percent wow uh, so so that's... it hits you hard now it doesn't stay 17 18 percent for it goes up super steep 
15% definitely yeah. levels out, but you don't have a chance to, it's just, it doesn't level out enough that you're getting a rest. You're still so going uphill. That's one of the things about those courses that are, okay, so you don't have long sustained climbs, but when you go up and down, up and down, and you never really get that recovery, that stuff can right. really hammer you. If- the, the, the first five or six miles of Mohican, I think, are the hardest five or six miles on the course um, because after you get up to that point and you're on the, you know, you're on, once you climb to the top, you're now on a little yeah. bit of a rise, maybe 3% that goes the rest of the way. So what you're saying, it's okay to just go out and hammer the first five because the rest is easy. (laughs) (laughs) That's that's game plan. You then have rolling hills. And when I say they're rolling, they're probably 200 feet high, rolling hills all the way down um, on pavement, quite a ways until you make a left onto some gravel and then onto some like freshly mowed fields, which if anybody's ridden over hot, ridden mountain bike over high grass, oh. you know, it's not that easy. Oh, it really wears on you. Yeah, it just sucks your energy. And some people are going way faster. And um, it's it just – so you, you roll across that section. Pretty soon you're on like some almost – they literally might be cow paths um, that they're often muddy even after – if it hasn't rained at all. Um, and then you – you come back into the race headquarters campground, which is where most people stay. You ride through the campground on a couple little like access roads and then out the other side of the campground, which is where the Mohican trail starts. And then you're on that trail for, I would say you're on that trail for 22, 25 miles. Is this all a hundred K and hundred milers together still? Everybody's together. Yep. Okay. Um, the good thing is that when you get onto those trails, it is just the funnest. It is the, in my opinion, the best single track in the NUE because it's not super climby. It's not super, it just kind of rolls and you can really keep your speed. It's interesting. It's in like, you know, there's tons of shade. It's not out in the open, really well-built trails. Um, a couple segments of that are a little tricky. There are two hike bikes that are stout. Um, Definitely cannot be ridden. You have to hike them because they are so steep. They're probably 20% or more. Up, uphill? uphill? Uphill, yeah. And so you climb up these. They're just almost They're almost um, like power line climbs. You know what I mean? Like you're just going up through a, a section that's just cleared and it's just super steep. Okay. Um, they're, no, they're no more than probably two or 300 yards long and they maybe take you three minutes to climb it. Um, and then you get up on top and then you roll, and then you hit another one um, near the end of the single track. There is a tricky section of it. You enter like some sections that is uh, that has some erosion problems. And there are these water bars, which are four by four or six by six beams that are actually put not perpendicular to the course, like a step would be, but actually diagonal across the course to keep water from eroding the trail. Yeah. And push it off. The, they're the really road. tricky. They could be tricky if you haven't ridden them before. You're going up uh, or down them? Going down them. Down them. Uh, so you go down them across that. You have a little section of single track after that, and then you come into um, aid station number two. Now, aid station number one is a neutral aid station, so you can't have your drop bags in there. And then once you hit aid station number two, then you're out onto the gravel roads, and that's where you know you just start into a large section of gravel roads. Um, there's a section of single track there in the middle, which is – horse trail which is often ruddy 
Um, just you know, it's, it's horse trail. So it's not to say that it's a rutted out mountain bike trail. It's, it's a horse trail that they only use for this one day a year. Um, and it can be a mess depending on how many horses have been there and how muddy it's been in the days before. Um, and there's another small section of like some technical rocky downhill single track. And then you're back out onto gravel roads. The other section of the course um, that it, I remember really well is there is a section of the course that is an out and back rail trail. Um, it's just slightly, I think it's slightly downhill on the way out and slightly uphill on the way back. Um, but it's about three miles in each direction. Then you hit the, then you're back on the gravel again, and then you come back into the into the backside of the campground in the Mohican uh, forest. And you do a, probably about a five or six mile section of uh, trail, which actually is a little bit climby, especially considering you're, you're popping into that section at mile 91 or 92. Good and then you're, it, right. And then you're, um, there's some, the rocks in there tend to get a little bit slimy um, just because it's always, it seems like it's always wet in that section. And um, then you're on a couple gravel access roads that are in and around the campground. You kind of weave through the campground a little bit in your final two miles, and then you finish in the campground um, on a long, flat, probably a quarter-mile flat gravel section. So if you get there and do a little pre-ride or something on Friday, you can actually kind of ride out from the campground to catch maybe some of the start of the race and then absolutely, just absolutely. turn around and ride the finish back. Well, sure what, I, what I did for my warm-up uh, before the race is I actually went out and rode that last eight miles of the final, the final section of single track. Okay. I mean, they always mark the course very well so that you can, um, you know, in the days before the event, so you can go out there and pick up a section. Um, cause you can actually get to the entrance point. It's only about a mile up the road from the campground to where you come back in to the backside. So, oh, okay. Yeah. Um, that's probably the best thing. Um, the, the couple secrets that I've found was, um, I made sure that I didn't skip the neutral aid. Often I will skip neutral aids in the end you eat only because I'm not going to drink what they have and I'm not going to, I'm not going to eat a cookie or potato chip or anything like that, that early in the race. But, um, the neutral aid is almost like you need to stop there at least to refill with just water or something, get an electrolyte in your system or something, because it's nearly two hours in when you hit that neutral aid and you still probably got another 45 minutes before you hit your first drop bag. Okay. So you're almost three hours into the race because that first section of single track is super turny kind of, you don't have like huge high speeds through there. And so there's sections, there's sections that you do, but, um, how about until the third, third aid station then? Well, the third, once you're out at the third, you're out into the, onto the gravel. And so you're, all of those are pretty well. And then you actually hit. Well, I mean, from, uh, from aid two to three. I can't remember. I don't remember that being an issue. Okay. My, the biggest one I remember is from the start finish line to the first aid station that has your drop bags, which yeah. is eight two. Okay. It's almost three hours. I think, um, it was pretty far, but it's, you know, considering that the only thing that's out there, um, between that is a neutral aid where you're going to have to use what they have. They don't allow, um, they don't allow your support to get in there, um, because it's kind of up some, uh, private roads and it, they also don't allow, um, drop bags. So, yeah. Yeah. So drop bags are not allowed at all of the aid stations. I, I do remember reading that. At, 
at Mohegan. Yeah, oh no, they have. You can have drop bags. Oh no, no, I meant not at all the aid stations. Oh, correct. Yes, so aid station number one is not does not have drop bags, um, and they also don't allow you to drop bags at everything. I think you're allowed to do three drop bags over the course, and none of them are, are repeated. So you're never going to like you know aid station three and four are the same like gotcha. or four and five like they're separate. They're every single one. It's one big loop, so you'll right. never repeat a section of course. Um, you do hit an aid station um, coming back in. You're only forty minutes from the finish when you hit that last aid station, which is just as you enter the park. Okay. Uh, that some people take advantage of, and some people are like, "Well, I'm this close now." Yeah, let it rip. <laughs> let it rip. So yeah, after that long on the bike. You- you get 40 minutes from the finish, you feel like you're home. Yeah, it's, uh, the like I said, the hardest part of that course, I think, is in the opening five to seven miles just because of the effort, just the people. The, the, even if you're purposely not doing that effort, um, you're then far enough back in the pack once you hit the single track that you're doing efforts to get around people that are riding really slowly. Um, so it's... Give You're telling me there's no good answer for me. There is no good answer there. Um, uh, no, I can't think. I can't think of a good way to approach that other than maybe sit like in the middle. Um, you know, interestingly, I didn't finish last year, um, but the guys. I, I thought I was well down the order, um, but the guys that I had been riding in and around for the 50 miles of the race that I did do um, were finishing, you know, top 30. I, whether that means they pass a lot of people or whether that just means I was further up the field than I thought I was. Um, yeah. It's you just, cause when you're on those long roads in the opening miles, you just look ahead and all you can see is just groups of riders just flying. Um, well, like you said too, of, you're all mixed together. Yes, and everybody's mixed together. So you don't know who's what. I assume yeah. the, the <clears throat> number plates are different colors or something, maybe. So if you, you kind of yeah, but that doesn't help out. you when you're riding behind somebody. Exactly. Yeah, <laughs> I've always I've always thought that there would be there should be a good way to mark somebody that you're coming up on ankle, you know, a purple ankle bracelet or a mark on the back of your saddle that lets you know. Yeah. Okay. Which, but, which, but of course, we're just we're just riding it to finish it, right? That's true. <laughs> that's true. I'm not. I'm not. I'm not. But I'm not saying it from the standpoint. I mean, but still, the guys. Yeah, no, I'm, that's just kidding. This race has actually had people from the 100K get in front of the 100 milers. Yeah. And the 100 milers put in huge efforts. It happened last year. Huge efforts to try to pull somebody back, only to find out they're not even in the same race. Yeah. Um. So. No, I mean, I I joke around and stuff about it, but I mean, I. I'll, I'll be, I'll push myself. I'll be, I'll be pushing myself to the limits. So, yeah. so. Just, okay. So with, that's how I have fun with it. Yeah. Um, with that said, do you have any questions, any, any other issues, anything you were curious about? No, I, I'm, I'm pumped about it. The, uh, at this point, yeah, ride what I've, what I've got, you know, I mean, it's, uh, there's single track. There's, it's like you could go run a tire. It sounds like for some gravel, but you still have single track and there's, there's a few rock gardens and stuff, right? Right. There's a few rock gardens. Um, nothing, nothing major that you should concern yeah. yourself with. Um, it's like, I'm just, I don't get too fancy about it. I, yeah. I usually, uh, I buy a set of tires at the beginning of the year and I see how long I can run them. 
Yeah. yeah. Um, and I don't, I don't you know, switch the, tires up and that kind of stuff. The, that, that course seems to, I mean, there are sections that don't drain well, but I've ridden it um, after rain and wasn't, it wasn't so muddy that I needed mud tires, so to speak. Um, so I don't, I don't think it's all that bad. And then once you're on the gravel, I mean, you're the majority of the course is still gravel. Yeah. So I, I run uh, those, um, continental cross Kings. They just seem to roll yeah, well and they still got they a little bit of knob yeah. for, to shed some mud, but, yep. uh, and, they're, yep. they're uh, and that is way. probably the, the exact tire. I will, I will use it. No, you can. Yeah. So I, those I, are I, tires. I went to the 2.4 up front this year and then okay. I got the 2.2 on the back. Cause they, they run a little narrow too. Mm-hmm. Yep. anyways the uh in the morning before the race it is like like a mile bike path ride up from uh yeah it's about Adventures. two miles and there like truly is a bike path it's not like you're riding road or i mean there's truly a bike path that goes right to the start finish line sweet um yep and you just kind of roll up there um they block the whole town off um you know it's pretty impressive to see I and mean, there's videos out there on youtube you can actually see a start of the mohican it's a it's a big field and then uh, and then you actually finish back at the campground, um, which is kind of race headquarters. It's where they'll do the, uh, all the presentations and that's where the beer garden will be for the race and where the food is after the race. Um, so they do feed you there. So, yeah, no, I'm, uh, I'm pumped about it. This is, uh, this is kind of the kickoff of summer events for me. It's, uh, this, and then three weeks later is the Lutzen and then two weeks later, Tatanka 100. And then four weeks later is Mata Hay and, so yeah, it's uh, <laughs> any training, any anything I want to do to get stronger is done. <laughs> now, <laughs> I'm now here. I just survive the next few months. Yeah, but uh, it'll be this, right. this year's going to be a great test, and I'm looking forward to like covering all the races and talking about them, and actually, you know, being part of more races too this year for my for myself. So, but how about and, you, Mark? What uh, you ready? Uh, I am. I'm ready to finish this race. Um, I. I, I wish I was a little bit in front, but you know, life takes, yeah, takes priority, you know, yep, and, and I, I'm not doing this for a living. I'm doing this for fun. Yeah. Um, but I'm, I'm really looking forward to the experience. It's always, it's always a great race. Ryan Adele puts on an amazing event. I'm really looking forward to the event. Um, with that said, one of the things I'm really looking forward to is maybe having a little get together after the race. Um, at Mohican. If you see us up there, ask us where we're staying. We'll direct you to, you know, which cabin or whatever it is. Um, hopefully maybe have a banner or something made that lets people know where we're at. So yeah, it'll be a like, nice little gathering, chilling out after the race, cool. telling stories. <laughs> yes. So. All right. I think that's it for uh, this episode of The Last Station. Thank you for tuning in. Uh, we really appreciate um, everything um, you guys do keep it in touch with us. Let us know about events. And if you do have a story or an event you think we should cover, please let us know. Get in touch with us either through the uh, Facebook page, The Last Aid Station, or um, Mark at mountainbikeradio.com or Steve at mountainbikeradio.com. And we'll just, uh, we'd love to cover it. We want more information so that we can make this more of a conversation versus a, a one way uh, informational podcast. So, yeah. All right. Thanks for seeing you. And, uh, I hope to see some of you, um, at Mohican. Um, if not, I'm sure Steve or I will see some of you at other races over the next month or so. So take care, stay safe, and we'll see you at a race near you later. Later.